The following audio is a sermon from the season of Advent. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear also the word of the Lord from Matthew 1, 18-25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. Let's try it one more time. Merry Christmas. It's uh. I've gotten three cards. Christmas, this has nothing to do with my sermon. It just helps me break the ice, I guess. No pun intended. I got three Christmas cards, and they all had Xmas on it. Have you guys got some of these yet? Because um, people were somewhat lenient or scared about putting Christmas on things. And I love it because the Greek symbol, what is the Greek symbol for Christ? It's just a big old fat X, man. And so I get these cards, and I get so pumped because it's. I don't really like take insult to it. I just think they're kind of going old school, like throwback Christmas cards. And so I love it every time I give one. Like Justin said, um, I'm from Collinsville, Illinois, the St. Louis Metro East. Uh, there's 700,000 people that make up the Metro East. 80% of them don't have, they have no religious affiliation. So 526,000, a half a million people who don't know the gospel, who don't attend church. They're unchurched, they're de-churched. It's one of the most unchurched areas in Illinois and, and in the Midwest as a whole. So it's an honor to, to be there um, by God's grace, just to, to serve that community and be on mission for that community and teach and, and preach the gospel to people. I thought I would start off my sermon with, with actually sharing two stories um, just about our church plan to kind of celebrate with you guys. We like to celebrate a lot down south, and so we, um, we thought as a church, we were just, I was talking to my team, and they're like, man, just go tell them some of these stories. And so I was like, okay, that's what I'll do. And so this is kind of neat. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you have ever fundraised before. But um, has anybody ever fundraised? Let's see some heads or hands. No? Said, okay, lots of you have fundraised. So you know, right, if you really want some sin exposed and you want to know how prideful you are, you just start fundraising, and God will expose all of that in your life. Well, um, we're, we've been fundraising for the last year. March is my deadline. I was sitting at my dining room table just praying and saying, God, I've got $30,000 to make up to have my budget fulfilled for 2014 for our church plant. What do I do? And I felt like he was like, hey, just send an email. And everyone, if you ask, they'll say, don't send emails because they're so impersonable. So I did. I added some smiley faces, some exclamation points, and they get a little more <laughs> personable. I sent it. Check this out. In 24 hours, he pledged $21,600 of our $30,000 that we needed met. Just huge deal. All by God's grace, his sovereignty in four days. It's going to blow your mind. In four days, my launch team, all of them increased their giving by over 50% on top of the pledges that had come in, and $40,000 were pledged in four days. Just huge. Can we celebrate that? You clap for me. You clap for that. That's huge. And so that's all about Jesus. And so 
and this is just kind of a fun story too, and then we'll roll into the sermon. Um, we invite our neighbor over. It's going to sound like a plug, but I don't watch sports. We invite our neighbor over for the World Series. Um, the Cardinals were in the World Series. They lost, I believe, and um, I know this isn't Cardinal Nation, so you guys are like, yeah, and um, that's right. And um, so we invited our neighbor over back a few months ago, and he's just been in, missional, in our missional community serving with us and us loving him and just inviting him in. And he tells me this story the other day on the way to church, and he said, he said, Corey, you know, I was wondering, when does missional community start? Like it has like a start and stop date or something. And he's like, when does it start? And he's like, I'm, th- I'm sitting there thinking, and as you know, man, I got, I got hit by a drunk driver. He's fine, not in his car. His car got totaled. He's like, I got hit by a drunk driver. And then the next thing I know, this is where the humor comes in. He's like, I'm at your house asking you if I can borrow your car to go to some lady's house I don't even know to let her dog out while she's out of town. And while I'm at her house pulling the key out from underneath the mat at night, wondering if the cops are going to come, I thought to myself, this must be missional community. <laughs> this must be what it is all about. And then he's, he's so jacked about it. And he's like, I'm going to work. And I'm trying to explain missional community and how we serve because Jesus served us and people aren't getting it. And he's like, it's just crazy. He's like, I was in it the whole time. And so it's neat. He's only been hanging with us for like two months. And he had no idea that, that the gospel was going to shape his life in that way. It was completely out of his control. So it's just a fun story that he just told me the other day. But here's the reality, right? We always want to take the reins, right? I mean, that guy, he didn't see himself in that situation. If it was up to him, he's in control. He's not letting himself into someone's house he doesn't know. And, and that's the reality for all of us is that we want to take the reins, right? We want to be in control. We love it. Like, we love the benefits of, of, of being in relationship with God without actually being in relationship with God. That's what we want. That's what we crave. And for those of us that are Christians, we actually believe that Christianity is about bring us, us some sort of satisfaction, us some sort of enlightenment or some sort of joy. And that is, in fact, the byproduct of being in a relationship with Christ, but it's not the end result. And sometimes we get that confused. Um, we want self-satisfaction, but, but pursuing Christianity and learning and understanding the gospel and building a relationship with Christ is not about self-satisfaction. It's about self-sacrifice. And that's what we see today with, with Mary and Joseph. And so my big idea, I'll have them throw this up. This is what we're going to kind of filter the whole sermon through, is God's promise reveals man's purpose. This is what I want you to listen for. I want you to, you're going to see this all throughout the text, throughout everything I say. We're going to keep coming back to the central idea, and that is God's promise reveals man's purpose. And the reality is, gang, if we don't know God's promises, we have no purpose. Quite literally, if we don't know God's promises, we have no hope, right? And so for those of you that are here that are maybe non-believers, you're not Christians, you don't submit to what we call truce, the same truce as us, or submit to Christ, here's what I want you to get out of this, is that I just hope to show you that God, he keeps his promises regardless of how man responds, right? He's going to fulfill his promises, he's going to be sufficient regardless of how us as the church, regardless of how humanity responds to those promises. And so if you got drug here today in the snow and you came in thinking the church is for the self-righteous and the holy, and people that have it all figured out, man, we are the scum of the earth in here. We're the sinners, the chief sinners in the Quad Cities. Keep your purse close. Right. Seriously, it's, it's Christmas, right? <laughs> Some of us got kids. <laughs> so. so here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to kind of unpack a bit about what Matthew is doing here. In ver- just in Matthew 1, verse 1 through 17. And then we're going to dive into the text. Um, I'm just going to invite you into that story. We're going to just talk about it as a story. It's what it is. 
Um, and then we're going to pause it. We're going to look at kind of the story arc of Scripture, and then we're going to come back into the story. You guys with me? If you're with me, say with you. All right, good. All right, so here's what we see. Matthew starts in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along in your Bibles, on your phones, your iPads, whatever you have. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew starts with the beginning of Jesus' genealogy. Why does he do that? Because Matthew is stating a case for who Jesus is. So Matthew starts by explaining how all the Old Testament is systematically and perfectly put together to bring about a Messiah. Matthew is going to go through 42, 42 generations of genealogy. To state a case is what Matthew is doing for who the Messiah is and, and how the Messiah came. And Matthew is talking to both Jews and non-Jews or what we call Gentiles. That's Jews and everyone else. Right? And he's stating a case for who the Messiah is. And Matthew's doing this because he wants his listener to once again yearn for the coming of the Messiah, to anticipate, to be excited about all over again for this Messiah that's been called to come to the earth. Matthew is showing his listener that God didn't just show up with Jesus, but God is Emmanuel, right? God is always with them, always been with them, always fulfilling his mission, always fulfilling his promises so that we would in fact know our purpose. Matthew is stating a case to his listeners because he wants them to know their purpose, and that is to respond in an attitude of faith and, and the delight in their relationship with God. And so now, verse 18, that's what Matthew's doing. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Matthew. Follow along with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. Right? This is what Matthew's saying. He's saying, listen up, church. Listen up. You're not going to believe the way the Messiah came into the world. You're not going to believe this miracle. This is how God fulfilled his promise, right? Why would he do this? Because in his culture, the Jews at this time thought that the Messiah was going to come in as a white knight or an army general or, a, or an earth-made king and eradicate or pull Israel away from the grasp of the Roman Empire. They're waiting on someone to come, someone big and powerful. And Matthew says, no, 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 that's not what happened. He says, let me tell you about it. Matt, the Messiah came as a baby. He had a mom. Her name was Mary. So what do we know about Mary? Most of what we have to put together comes from what we know about Jewish culture and what the scriptures have to say about her. There's a few things we know for absolute sure about her. One, she was a young Jewish girl. She would attend the temple with her family regularly. She would have remembered large portions of Old Testament scripture. She would have drew water from the middle of the well with the rest of the ladies in the center of the town. She also would have been anywhere between 12 to 15 years old during this time. Ladies, especially if you've had babies or you're thinking about babies, 12 to 15, are you ready to give birth to God? <laughs> you're like, I couldn't even drive a stick shift, a stick shift yet, <laughs> let alone birth Jesus, right? And so 12 to 15 years old, I couldn't imagine what's going on. But Mary, as we know, as the scriptures say, she would have been a great, man, just a great woman of faith. She believed God's promises. And as a result, Mary is displayed as one of the most faithful people, one of those holy people outside of Christ, right? Some churches and denominations talk way too much about her, and others don't talk near enough, if we're being honest. But we know for sure that she works hard, that Mary loves her family well, that Mary trusts in God's promises, and she's a beautiful display of what it means to be a woman of faith. She would have been from a small, hyper-conservative Jewish town, like everyone would have known everyone in this town. And not only that, but she's planning a wedding, right? Some of you ladies 
have planned weddings. Some of you are the, the moms. Some of you are the brides. Some of you are the maids or uh, matrons of honor, I think is what they're called. You guys that have been married, you probably have no clue what I'm talking about, but that's okay. She would have been planning a wedding, and check it, not to discount your wedding or, or my own. This wasn't just a, like a, a, um, a rehearsal dinner and, and then ceremony and reception. I mean, this wedding is a big deal. I mean, this wedding would have been a week-long celebration, fully catered to the nines. I mean, and the whole town is invited to this wedding that she's planning. This would have been one of the biggest ceremonies of the year to take place in the small, hyper-conservative Jewish town. Everyone is anticipating, talking about this event, and Mary is pregnant. With a baby from the Holy Spirit, as Matthew so purposely adds. All right, so what do we know about Joseph? Verse 19, if you could follow along with me again. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, put your finger on that, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, right? Joseph loves this woman, right? Most of what we know about Joseph, again, Joseph comes from Jewish culture, the text, and honestly just being a guy who's been in love with a gal before, right? We know he loves this woman. He grew up with her. He probably watched her grow into the young lady that she was. He probably chased her around that well in the middle of the town. He's been through the trenches as a man, right? He's been on some first awkward dates. He's asked um, her dad, Mary's dad, for a hand in marriage. He's set through that super easy conversation to have if you've ever been in that conversation before, right? It's the most intimidating moment in your life, and you know they're going to say yes, you know, or you hope to God that they're going to say yes. It's still intimidating. Joseph's been there. As a man, he's been through the trenches. And at a young age, probably 16, a just man. A proven man. It means he worked hard. It means he kept his word. He was respectable, faithful, knew the scriptures, believed in God's promises, submitted to the will of God. It means he has honor. It means he's admirable, men. He's in good standing with everyone he interacts with. He's well respected. And putting shame on Mary is out of the question. So he chooses to divorce her quietly. So let me shed some light on this for you. Mary and Joseph, okay? Mary's pregnant with a baby before marriage. In our culture, unfortunately, we overlook this in a lot of ways. I won't get into all that, but we do. In their culture, adultery was grounds for punishment that led to death. Okay, what Joseph is considering is taking Mary to the center of the town and having everyone in the town lob stones at her until she dies. That's what he's contemplating. This is what's going on in his head. It wasn't something that was overlooked. It was grounds for execution in their time, in, in their town. And it's out of the question. Because it's not just shame that's going to get put on Mary for this execution, for this death, but it's shame that's going to get put on her whole family. And Joseph says, no, right? I love this woman. I will divorce her quietly before I ever do that. And so let's keep reading. Verse 20, but as Joseph considers these things, right, divorce her quietly, have her killed, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, crazy. But as Joseph, as he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. 
Mary is planning a wedding. Joseph is preparing for divorce. And the Holy Spirit shows up. And could you imagine preparing for divorce before you even walk down the aisle? That's what's taking place in their lives. And this angel appears and he shows up. He says, Joseph, man, you know that Messiah that all of creation is waiting on, this longing for, patiently anticipating, that's your son. The advent is over. The season of waiting is over. Everything, all the prophecies, the promises, everything that you and your people have been anticipating is about to come true. This was always the plan, always God's mission, always God's promise. This moment in time. Corey, how do you know that this has always been the plan? Well, church, I could not have asked a better question myself. I would gladly, I will tell you exactly how I know this. Here's what we're going to do. Take a look at the screen. I just put this really fancy slide. Actually, I put together a really puny slide, and then they doctored it up. But here's what it is. So this is what I call the story of Advent, right? I told you we're going to pause the story, and we're going to walk through what I call the the true story or the story of Advent. I'll explain these, and then we're going to look at the first three. So the arrow pointing down. Can you all see these okay? The arrow pointing down, that's creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The X is the fall of mankind. That's Genesis 3. That next arrow, the third one, right there. Second one, I guess, right past the X. It's just getting confusing now. Sorry. This can hear right there. Um, that's what we call the first advent. That's the season of wait, the season of anticipation, the season of promise. This is the season that all of Israel is in. We're going to unpack that. Then we have the cross, Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection. We have our season of advent, boom, right there that we're in, which is called the already not yet. Your pastor spoke on this just a few weeks ago. And then we have restoration or consummation or him coming back. He's going to come back, restore, redeem everything, the arrow pointing down. To keep you with me, we're going to focus on the first three. You guys are ready? Say ready. All right. Advent, right? The season that we're celebrating right now during Christmas did not begin and end in a manger. It was put in the motion shortly after the creation of the world. Arrow pointing down, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the world and everything in it. But he's not completely satisfied. He keeps saying this is good and that's good and this is good and that's good. But he's not completely satisfied. He needs something. Better yet, he needs someone to bear his image. Someone who can delight in him. He doesn't need them, but he wants someone to bear his image. He creates Adam. And we see a beautiful display of God's character. God says it's not okay for Adam to be alone. Why? Because Adam cannot fully bear God's image in isolation. Adam needs community. God is communal. He's interdependent on himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three who's, one what. We call it the Trinity. He's independent on himself, not on us, interdependent on himself. He is community. He is communal. This is our DNA. We are community. I would ask you, what does your community look like? It's up to you to maintain and hold that responsibility, but he is community. He says, it's not okay for man to be alone, so what did he do? He creates an Ezra Konegdo. Men, don't use that as a pet name. I had a guy tell me once, oh, that's nice, you know? People say French is a beautiful language, but Hebrew is this dead old language. Don't use Ezra Konegdo. It's not going to get you any bonus points. I can see in the ladies' faces, they're like, what is he talking about? Hebrew word, Ezra Konegdo, it means a suitable helper. It means he, God made Adam someone in accordance with him, someone to complete him, so to speak. God makes him, makes Adam Eve. And then God is satisfied. And what happens? Like, the creator of the universe is satisfied. Creation is no longer just good. It is now very good. Scripture says there is shalom, another Hebrew word for 
peace. Not like peace in war. Not like peace like 60s, 70s hippie peace. Peace like balance. There's balance in the created order. God of the universe is satisfied. Man is made, delighting in God. We're transitioning to the X. Adam and Eve have been given dominion, freedom, rights to and over everything they can see, except they're not to do what? To eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life, for they will surely die, both physically and spiritually. They will die if they rebel against God. Will they get tempted by Satan? Adam does a terrible job of leading his wife. Eve eats from the tree. Adam follows because he's, in fact, a follower in this moment of weakness and not a leader. And in a moment, Adam and Eve commit cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. We call this the fall of man, Genesis 3. In their pride and their rebellion, they want to be God. They want to steal God's glory. They want the benefits of knowing God without actually being in relationship with God. So what do they do? They turn to a tree. They turn to a piece of fruit to provide something that only God can provide. To provide something that God had already freely given them. That's called salvation or their free relationship with God. And in a single bite, literally, all hell breaks loose on earth. Chaos, the world, is infected with sin. Everything we see and experience is tainted. There's four specific relationships that are broken. Relationship between God and man. Adam and Eve feel exposed. They feel naked. They feel shame. They're no longer delighting in their relationship with God. Relationship between man and others. There's now strife in the marriage for those of us that are married, right? We don't argue. We just have intense debates, right? He hasn't been there. There's, there's sin in marriage, disruption in marriage. We see that now with adultery, cheating, lying. Relationship between man and self. They feel anxiety. They feel shame. They feel brokenness. They're not delighting in their relationship with God anymore. They're, in fact, they're in rebellion. Relationship between man and all, in cre- all of creation is broken. I mean, look outside. We're feeling the effects today of the sin that took place in Genesis 3. Hurricanes, tornadoes that wipe people out. Washington, Illinois, tsunamis. We, we experience the weight of the sin every day, and we overlook it, if we're being honest. Genesis 3 is the result of this, the fall of man, man's rebellion. rebellion. And what do we see, though? A beautiful display of God's character. What does he do? He's missional. And he goes after them as a father or a mother would embrace their child. He goes after them he sternly but lovingly rebukes them. He tells them the result of their sins. Insert the first gospel presentation, the Proto-Evangelium. Again, your pastor preached on this a few weeks ago. This is the first presentation of the gospel to the snake or to Satan. He says, you're cursed above all the livestock. You're going to slither for the rest of your days, Satan. You're limited in proximity and in power. You're stuck here until I say that you're going somewhere else, until I send you to hell. You're stuck here, Satan. And to Eve, he says, from you, Eve, from your offspring will come a man, will come a Messiah, will come a man. He will crush the serpent's head. He will bruise his heel. It's going to hurt him. But he's going to crush. He's going to finish Satan. Why do I share this? Why take time to talk through this? Because in this moment, the promise reveals man's purpose. This is the foundation for everything leading up to where Mary and Joseph are. This is the foundation, this promise. It reveals our purpose, and that is that we are called to delight in relationship with God, to respond in faith, to rest in the finished work of God. 
not to earn anything ourselves, not to earn our salvation or be religious. That's religion. This is all religion is what we're talking about. Trying to earn something that only God can give you, and that is free relationship with him. That's grace. And they couldn't get it. All of creation can't understand it. This third arrow, the first advent. From this moment, God shares the gospel for the first time. From the first gospel presentation, all of creation. Listen, all of creation is in a season of waiting, a season of promise, waiting on a Messiah, waiting on Eve's offspring. Everything that we see in the Old Testament has been systematically and perfectly put together to create a longing in the people of Israel for this moment that we get to delight in today, for the story that we get to read about. It's amazing. All the promises to, to Abram, I'm sorry, to Abraham and to Noah that their offspring would be a blessing to the world. Who's their offspring? It's the Messiah. Sacred City, you spent a year and a half in Genesis, so some of this you'll be familiar with. The promises to Moses at Mount Sinai, whenever they gave, the, and God gave the, Israel the Ten Commandments. Why did he give them the Ten Commandments? So they would look at it and see their imperfection, their brokenness, their depravity, and they would turn to their relationship with God. He gave the Ten Commandments so that they would feel the, their insufficiency and in God's sufficiency in their life. Everything, even with that, the sacrificial system. For every time someone in Israel sinned, they had to make a sacrifice. Why? To create a longing in their hearts for the coming Messiah. Every sin had a sacrifice. What does that mean, Corey? That means every single day, every minute of every hour of every day, of every ceremony, every season change, there was the, the smell of burnt animal flesh in the air. Everywhere they walked, blood would have been ridden in the gutters. Why? So when they looked around, they would see their insufficiency. They would see the whole sacrificial system is incomplete, and they would long for the day that a Messiah would come and be sacrificed in their place as their substitute. Everything in the Old Testament perfectly put together. Every story, every detail, every promise, everything. It wasn't just a season of four weeks at Christmas that we come and delight in. It was thousands of years that arrow is thousands of years of longing and waiting and preparing. It's failed religious attempt after failed religious attempt to earn salvation. Prophecy after prophecy, fallen king after fallen king, war after war, promise after promise, exile after exile, and sacrifice after sacrifice. This is what the angel is thoroughly explaining to Joseph. We know that from other areas in the New Testament. He didn't just come and quote Isaiah in verse 23. He unpacks all of the Old Testament to Joseph and says, look at what you get to be a part of. The Messiah that the whole, all of creation is waiting for, longing for. He's here. And he's your son. Could you imagine what is taking place? Just to be a fly on the wall in that conversation would have been amazing. As we move back into the story, verse 22. All of this took place, Joseph. Everything you're experiencing, everything from the Old Testament. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, that's what the prophet says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This angel is quoting Isaiah, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. God is always Emmanuel, always there, always with them. And Joseph, being a just man, knows this has always been the plan. This has always been the promise. Joseph knows his purpose, and it's to respond in faith. Let's see how he responds. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. 
and he called his name Jesus. All right. I remember growing up, my grandma had a, a really beautiful china cabinet. Really beautiful, really heavy. She's world traveled. She'd been all around the world with her, with her sisters. Every year they went somewhere and they brought back china. And she would let us play with it. I mean, we would use it all the time, throw it all around the house. No big deal. Um, she didn't act like it was a big deal. Maybe it was. <laughs> but, um, but I remember thinking, you know, she lets us play with this as kids. And, you know, why does she keep it in a china cabinet? So I asked, you know, why, why, do you, why this cabinet? You know, we just play with it all anyway. Um, because it's fragile? No. Because it's valuable. See, Joseph looks at his wife and sees the value of his wife. That's why he takes her. That's why he steps up and does something. That's why he loves and leads and protects her. Because she's fragile? No. Because she's valuable. Because he recognizes her value and the value of the precious cargo that she's carrying. Joseph does something. Most of you men, you think way too much and you do too little. Joseph does. He did, right? He didn't sit and contemplate his 401k and retirement plan. He didn't bust out his Greek lectionary or dictionary and see what, what could God mean by me go and lead and love my wife and help her raise the Messiah. He does something. Recognizes God's promise is about to be fulfilled. Joseph knows his purpose. What does he do? Pulls his wranglers up. <laughs> he tightens up the steel-toed boots because he's a carpenter and that's stuff you guys use that are carpenters, Right? With a toolbox in one hand and a lunchbox in the other man, he walks up to his wife and says, I'm going to work because we have an extra mouth to feed. Joseph does something. Loves, leads, protects his wife. Why? Because she's fragile? No. She's valuable. <laughs> he says we're going to work. Right? Mary is strong, God-fearing, faithful woman. Knows God's promises. She's fully aware of the mission God's laid out before her. She's probably... She, but he's still there to protect, to love, to lead her. And what happens? Grace breaks through the created order in the form of a baby given to Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. A baby, listen to this, a baby who surrendered his kingdom to come and be a servant. More so, a baby who had a mom that would count his ten fingers and ten toes at birth and see those same ten fingers and ten toes hammered to a cross on the day of his death. He doesn't come in as a white knight, he doesn't come in as an earthly-made king. Surely he doesn't come as an army general. He comes as a baby. Completely different than what everyone would have thought. In December, last December, we had a baby named Emma, December 19th. And uh, someone got us a gift, as you get a lot of gifts sometimes when you have a baby. And it had a onesie. Some of you might own this onesie. It said, Silent Night. I don't think so. <laughs> right? If you don't believe me, you can you can borrow her. I'll let you. <laughs> just lend her to you. I'll pay you. <laughs> Extra. And um, well, she's sweet. But Silent Night, I don't think so. Jesus is born as a baby. Right? Silent Night, I don't think so. He's born fully God, fully man, in a manger. You think it was a peaceful night? Holy night? Sure. Silent Night? No. <laughs> the song just wouldn't work, though. If you <laughs> Holy Night, terrible. <laughs> just doesn't work. Right, but he's born as a as a as a baby, and so why do we? I mean, why this story? Why talk about this story? Besides Advent and and that, but the reality is this: gang, we we need the constant reminder that God is always faithful to to to, to fulfill His promises. 
We constantly need that reminder in our lives. And here's, here's why it's so important. Because God wants to write a better story for your life than you could write for yourself. Period, right? He wants to write a better story for your life than you could write. He cares more about you than you care about you. He cares more about your relationships, more about your marriage, more about your kids, more about your job, more about your house, more about all that stuff that's very temporal and unsatisfying in the long term. It all goes away. He cares more about you, more about that than you do. I mean, does this look like this is what Joseph and Mary planned? You think Joseph is like, yeah, this is it. This is, when, we're, when they're planning their wedding and they're dating on those first awkward dates and they're honeymooning and they're, and they're thinking, yeah, like, this is what I want. Mary, I want you to be ridiculed for the rest of your life. I want all of Israel to view you as a tramp. Because in this hyper-conservative Jewish culture, that's exactly what would happen. All the Old Testament references to Israel being a whore would have been put on Mary. That's what she's dealing with in this culture. Yeah, I want to be seen as as unmanly. I want to be seen as an idiot. That's what I want for me. I want our child. I want Jesus, the girl being taunted we read about in Scripture. I would love for him to be viewed as a bastard child. That's what I want for him. That's my plan for us and our marriage. Does this look like his vision? No. But God totally wants to write a better story for them than they could ever imagine writing for themselves. Does he not? He wants to bring about a Messiah. And for some of you, right, life isn't going the way you planned. The promotion didn't come. Um, the raise, the year-end bonus, it, yeah, it just didn't come this year. For some of you, maybe it's the opposite of Mary and Joseph, where the baby you've been planning just hasn't come. It's just not happening. So we're trying to adopt. Well, that hasn't happened. We're trying to foster. Well, it's just not going the way we planned. Maybe you had to call off the wedding quietly. Maybe you're planning divorce before you walk down the aisle. How, do I say, how can I say these things? Because Heights Church is a church plant. And this, all of this has happened in the last three months in our missional communities. So I can look out at Sacred City that has, well, quite a few more people than we do as a church plant. We haven't even launched yet. And it's safe to assume these things are taking place in the church. That's why missional community is so important. So we can share and declare the gospel with one another during these seasons. It's part of our purpose. But what do you go to to bring yourself hope? What do you look to to bring yourself hope? If I had to guess... It would be yourself and your ability to perform and your ability to be able to measure up. If you work hard enough at the job, you work hard enough at getting that kiddo. If you work hard enough, then you can have the house you want and you can have all the materialism and all the gifts this season. And you might be right. You probably will get those things and they will bring you no satisfaction because there's always something else that we're longing for. We always want something more for us Christians. right? You come to this story. I mean, you come in here and think, oh, it's the Christmas story. I've heard it. Heard it a thousand times. Right? And then you wonder why your relationship is so stagnant. And you wonder why you don't believe that God is sufficient. It's because there's not anything new. There's no, nothing sexy about Christianity anymore. Because you, you're Christmas, Easter, and occasional holidays. CEOs. Right? I had an old pastor tell me that a few weeks ago. So I stole it um, for today. I'll repent later. And so, right? But you wonder why it's so stagnant. I'll go to church at Christmas and Easter. I go to church whenever my wife drags me there. 40% of women, are, that's it. They get to go to church with their husbands. And we wonder why, why we think Christianity is so boring. It's because you're not putting yourself in a position to rely on God's promise. You're not putting yourself in a position to be reminded of the grace that flows from the gospel, being reminded of who Jesus is. For some of you that are here that maybe aren't Christians at all, your lack of relationship is based off the way you view others in the church the way they pursue their faith or their lack of faith. And as a result, you don't pursue Christianity. 
That's why in the beginning of a sermon, I can say, keep your purse close, and it's funny <laughs> because Christians are completely jacked up. <laughs> and if we look to them, we look to me as a pastor, Justin as a pastor, the elders of the church to, to bring you some sort of satisfaction or enlightenment, they're only going to let you down. Christians will only let you down, period. That's why you have to look to Christ and the gospel, understand the gospel, God's characteristics. He's faithful to fulfill his promise and send Messiah. For some of you, Christians, you're living missionally, man. I mean, you get it, right? Like you, you, you invite people into community and you share the gospel and you build a relationship. You know all the missional community buzzwords. You read all Tim Chester's stuff. I mean, you get it. You know the gospel, right? But even for you, somewhere along the way, you've actually let the weight of people's lives and relationships set on your own shoulders. Whenever marriages aren't fixing themselves, whenever people aren't just getting the gospel. I mean, I've, I've shared it with you. You should get it by now. How many times have we said that? Right? There's no grace in that, but we've said, I mean, I was there last week. If you would just stop hunting and get a job, maybe your wife would love you a little bit more. I was there last week. No grace. I had to call and repent and say, man, like, I'm sorry that I was so bold. That conversation needed to happen, probably not in that moment, right? It needed to happen after some prayer. But we put the weight of people's lives and relationships on us instead of remembering what the, the Jesus, that's why he died. He wants to bear the weight of that. He bared the weight of that for us in our place. So that's why we talk through this. So how are we called to respond? Let's look briefly. I'll run through this last, um, hope those, all six of those. And we'll hit the last three and we'll be done. But yeah, so we went through the first three. Here's the last three. We're going to get our application out of this. First off, know the gospel, the cross. Simple application today. Know the gospel, believe it. Know God's promises, believe God's promises are faithful. Know that it doesn't end and begin in a manger. It's always, this is always the promise to bring about a Messiah. Know that Jesus walks in your place as your substitute. There's no need to feel shame or sin or guilt as Adam and Eve did because he took all that with him to the cross. Why? How did he do that? Because he walked in perfection, perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, perfectly fulfilled all the Old Testament promises, perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic law that we can't even remember, right? It shows our own depravity and brokenness, perfectly fulfilled, upholds all Old Testament Levitical laws, all 613 of them, however many there are. Jesus walks in our place as our substitute without sin, and in doing so, goes to the cross in our place, takes all of our sin, past, present, future, puts it on himself, and in turn, he blankets us. Man, as a, again, as a parent would cover their child, he blankets us with his righteousness, his perfection, so that we don't have to feel guilt, we don't have to feel exposed, we don't have to feel shame, dies, rises to new life. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that's always with us, the same Spirit that is always Emmanuel. Rises to new life, goes and seated next to the Father, gives us that Holy Spirit to lead, guide, mentor us, shape us, grow us in the gospel, convict us, challenge us, bring people to faith by his hands, not by ours. He goes to intercede for us next to the Father. What does that mean? This is one of my favorite parts of the gospel, if I could have a favorite. That means Jesus is standing between us and God. And when we fall short and we sin and we don't do things the way that we're supposed to do or feel like we're supposed to do, God's there to intercede. Jesus is interceding, saying, don't look at them, look at me. Don't look at them and their shortcomings, look at me and my perfection. Don't worry about them not putting faith in your promise. I perfectly fulfilled your promise. Don't worry about them being sufficient. I'm sufficient. Don't worry about them and their, their meeting your expectations. I faithfully fulfilled all of your expectations. You love them because you love me. You pursue them because you pursue 
because I pursued them actually in, because of everything I did in their place as their substitute. But you pursue them because of me, right? You chase them down because of me. It's about me. It's all about me, always been about me, and will forever be about me, right? It's all about Jesus and this Messiah. It has nothing to do with us. We're just the speaker. We just get to share the message, and the message brings hope. We have to know this message, own it, and enter into the world with a Christ-centered worldview and not a self-centered worldview. We should see the, the world through a lens of the gospel, knowing it's all about him, not about us, which while he's there, we're here. That's the second season of Advent. So what does that mean? That means, first, we need to know the gospel, believe it, believe the promises. And secondly, do you live like there's no tomorrow? is the only thing I could think of for my application. Because we've been given complete freedom in Christ, and we're in a season of waiting, just as Israel was in a season of waiting on a Messiah. We have nothing to lose. This is as bad as it gets for us that are in Christ. It's it. This is as bad as it gets. It only gets better. Live in this season. And what we're called to do, we're called to make disciples to make disciples. We're called to live out God's character in nature. We are missional because we're really good at articulating gospel truths? No. We're missional because that's our DNA because Jesus is missional. We're called to serve because we're really great at making Christmas casseroles? No. (laughs) I would only fail you in that, right? We're called to serve because Jesus served the fullness of himself to us in the gospel. That's our DNA. That's who we are. It's not what we do. It's who we are. We are mission. We are community. We are service. That's how we're called to live, and it will bring us more joy than we could ever imagine. And we bring nothing to the table. It's amazing. I'm just going to saturate you with that. As we think in our westernized culture that I can earn something. I can do something. I can bring something to the table. And Jesus has done it all in our place. It's amazing. And then lastly, he's returning. So what do we do? We can rest in his promises. The world says work. We say rest. Or God says rest. Sorry. We get the rest in knowing that we do have a Messiah that's coming. He's fulfilled all of those promises. And he's going to f- keep fulfilling the promise of complete restoration. He's coming back to restore all those broken relationships. Amazing. I mean, think about in our own lives the distorted relationships. In marriage, how many people do you know with cancer? How many people do you know that are going through divorce, adultery? How many people can't have children? The adoption's not working. The house hasn't come. I mean, there's so much brokenness. And he's coming back to restore perfect shalom, right? Peace to the created order. He will come back as a ruling, reigning Messiah. So how will you live out this season of Advent? It's up to you to decide. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to have Justin come up. God, we pray and thank you so much um, for loving us more than we love ourselves. And uh, God, I just thank you for Sacred City, um, for equipping them with the gospel, for giving me, just a young church planner, preacher, the opportunity just to come share in your word. God, it, uh, it never returns void. And so we praise you for that. We, we love you. We love the gospel message of your son walking in our place. God, you take away all of our shame, our guilt, our need to measure up, our need to excel for ourselves. God, you call us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Um, so this season of Advent that we're in, just as the Israels are in, God, the Israelites are in, I pray, God, that you would lead us on mission, lead us to, to be the face of Christ in work, in schools, campuses, coffee shops, everywhere. God, lead us to be on mission and in community. God, for your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. It's the gift and power of the Spirit. Amen.